I've, I've said before uh, that uh, one of the things about preaching through books of the Bible or, or sections of the book, uh, like we do here at Darabin Presbyterian, uh, is that I just can't avoid any of the hard topics. Uh, so every week I just kind of open up the Bible and I prepare to preach on the next section of God's Word that, that's coming up. Uh, sometimes that's easy, uh, sometimes it's hard. And I've got to say that this is one of the weeks where it's harder. Uh, I would prefer uh, just to preach on something easier. I recognize how complicated and painful and personal uh, the whole topic of divorce and, and, and remarriage is. I uh, walked personally beside my sister uh, when she tried to kind of put the pieces back together of her life uh, after her own divorce. Uh, so I, had, I have some understanding of what this is like, but really I have no idea what it's like to live every day in an unhappy marriage. No, no concept of that. I don't know what it's like to, to go through uh, the trauma of divorce. But so, so really, who, who am I to stand up and say anything about this? Uh, perhaps you've experienced this and you wonder, who's this guy? I'm no one. Uh, but I guess my conviction is that uh, what Jesus has to say on this topic, as on every topic, is good. It's good. It's good for individuals. Uh, it's good for marriages. Uh, it's good for society. Uh, so I'd invite you uh, to pray with me, uh, to pray for me. As we look at this passage, and uh, let's, let's pray that it's useful for us all. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, uh, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, you don't just uh, care about uh, a couple of parts of our life or uh, a couple of hours when we meet uh, on Sundays, uh, but you actually, uh, that being one of your people uh, affects our whole life and, and you have things to say, words to speak, good words uh, for our good about every part of our lives, including marriage, uh, this most central of relationships. And, and so, and including speaking into the pain of, of divorce and remarriage and, and all the complexity of this. And so I do pray this day that you would uh, you'd help me to be faithful and sensitive and clear. Uh, I pray that you would uh, spur us on uh, to be people who make firm commitments uh, and who are gripped afresh by your incredible commitment to us in Christ. Uh, please uh, speak to us this day, I pray. Amen. Uh, so uh, remember the context. I don't know if you've been here in previous weeks, but this is the third of six passages in which Jesus uh, is correcting the, the false interpretations of God's law that uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are promoting. And those false interpretations have been leading uh, really to false definitions of righteousness. Right? Righteousness, that means uh, what does it actually look like to live in a way that pleases God? Uh, what does righteousness actually look like? Uh, also, remember uh, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. Right? He's, not just, he's not speaking to people who aren't Christians. Uh, he's speaking to people who are already members of God's kingdom. Uh, they're blessed by God. They're accepted by God. They're, they're loved by God. And, and he's saying to his disciples, uh, this is what it looks like for you in, in all the different areas of your life uh, to live in a way that pleases God, a righteous way. Uh, last week, uh, Jesus spoke about adultery and lust. If you flick back in your Bible, you'll see that. Uh, so maybe it's natural that he moves on to another issue to do with marriage. Uh, it's divorce. 
Uh, it's important to know that these two verses in Matthew chapter 5, uh, they don't represent everything Jesus had to say uh, about divorce. We know that because, as uh, Harry just read, uh, these two verses in Matthew 5 are, are really just a summary of j- the longer teaching that gives, Jesus gives about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. So that's why I got Harry to read both passages, and what I want to do today uh, is spend most of our time looking at the longer passage in Matthew chapter 19, uh, so then we can best understand what Jesus is saying in the summary passage in Matthew 5. Uh, So if you want to uh, open up Matthew chapter 19, uh, let's have a look uh, at that passage. Uh, You'll notice in in verse 3 of that passage that that Jesus is addressing a question. Uh, And the, the real question he's addressing uh, is what are the acceptable grounds for divorce? That, that's the question he's addressing here. So you see there, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife uh, for any and every reason? Now this is not just a question out of the blue. This, uh, this question of divorce uh, was a, a controversy that was really bubbling away amongst the Jews in Jesus' day, uh, in particular uh, amongst Jewish rabbis. Uh, there was a big controversy about the acceptable grounds of divorce. Basically, uh, there were two different schools. Uh, but the, the controversy uh, stemmed from different interpretations of God's law uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. So actually, if you've got a Bible, an actual Bible, I haven't got that passage for you. Let me encourage you, uh, if you uh, come to church, you can always pick up a Bible at the door, bring your own Bible. Uh, If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, So from the start of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy. Uh, So if you want to flick open to Deuteronomy, uh, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, I think actually understanding this context will help us to understand Uh, Matthew 19. Uh, Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Uh, It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, uh, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then uh, her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. And now, uh, of course, uh, some of you here hear those verses and you think, man, that, that's narrow-minded. Uh, archaic even. Like for, for a start, uh, it's clear like that only husbands have the right to divorce their wives. But what about the wives' rights? And those are uh, reasonable responses. I guess what we do have to remember is that these laws uh, were given in a very different culture to our own. It was a, a thoroughly patriarchal culture. A culture where uh, women were really only connected to society uh, through their relationships with men. Uh, their husband, their father, their son. Uh, so in that kind of context, uh, this law is actually radically countercultural. Its concern is to protect the rights of women. Now you might not get that, right? it's not immediately obvious, but I'll give you a couple of things. Uh, notice that it requires husbands uh, to give reasons for the divorce. That's countercultural. Like typically in, in, in this kind of day and age, they could just kind of kick the wife out, no reasons at all. 
Uh, but no, here, reasons have to be given. And the reasons, they can't just be blurted out in the heat of the moment. Uh, they have to be written down in a certificate. And in Israel, the certificate had to be reviewed by one of the magistrates, one of the judges. And if it was deemed uh, that there were legitimate reasons, uh, the divorce would go through. It would be approved. So even uh, though this law, it, it seems pretty out of date, is out of date uh, by today's standards, in Moses' day, uh, it was radically countercultural. It was actually concerned with protecting the rights of women. But, but the, the crux of the debate in Jesus' day, if you've got Deuteronomy 24 open, is found in different interpretations of verse 1. Well, you see there in verse 1, uh, Moses says that, that a husband is allowed to divorce his wife uh, if he finds something indecent with her. So the question that the Jewish rabbis were wrestling with uh, is, what's something indecent? And basically, there, there were these two schools of thought. Right? On the one hand, there was uh, Rabbi Hillel, uh, and he said that uh, pretty, uh, something indecent uh, referred pretty much to anything at all uh, that displeased a husband. It could be that he dished, uh, that uh, the, the wife dished up a cold meal, uh, that she let the house get a bit too messy, that she didn't shave her legs often enough. Like it literally could be anything that the husband found uh, displeasing. On the other hand was Rabbi Shammai, who said that something indecent really only referred to adultery. Uh, so uh, the, the Hillel school, right? They had this really liberal view of marriage, and they said that the purpose of marriage is to promote pleasure. And to promote happiness, right? at least for the husband. And so if anything displeases the husband, if anything's not kind of maximising his happiness, uh, out with the wife. Okay to divorce. Oh, on the other hand, the Shammai school, they had a very conservative view of marriage. Right? Marriage uh, was a permanent relationship, a binding relationship. Uh, divorce should only be considered in the, uh, in the event of adultery. So that's the background to the Pharisees coming to Jesus in Matthew 19. And what's clear in Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5, perhaps surprisingly, uh, considering how legalistic the the Pharisees were in most areas, uh, but what's clear is that they take that very liberal view of marriage. That's why in Matthew 5, verse 31, Jesus says, uh, It has been said... But it's been said in one level in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 24, but in another sense by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Like the Pharisees said uh, that anyone who divorces his wife uh, must give her a certificate of divorce. So in Matthew 19, like the Pharisees asked this question and we're about to find out where Jesus stands on the issue. Is Jesus a conservative when it comes to marriage and divorce or is he a liberal, progressive type? Is he with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel? That's the background. And the Pharisees know that if they can get Jesus to kind of align himself with either of those camps, uh, the other camp will oppose him. So that's their motivation, right? They want to stir up trouble for Jesus. It's a, it's a, that's why they, uh, Matthew says it's a test. It's a, it's a religious trap. But it's not just a religious trap. It, it's also a political trap. If you look in Matthew 19, verse 1, Uh, you'll see that this conversation is happening in Judea. Uh, Judea is a territory that's ruled by a guy named Herod Antipas. Not Antipasto, uh, maybe that's where his name came from, but Antipas, like Herod Antipas. And uh, and, uh, we know from elsewhere in the Bible uh, that Herod has a pretty dodgy marriage to his sister-in-law Herodias. 
And if you read Mark chapter 6, uh, John the Baptist uh, called into question Herod's marriage, and soon after he ended up losing his head. Right? It didn't go well for John the Baptist. Uh, and so the Pharisees deliberately come to Jesus when he's in Herod's territory, and they ask him this question, hoping that he too uh, will fall into this trap, that he too will be killed. So this, is, this question is a testing question uh, for religious and political reasons. So how does Jesus answer? Well, that's verses 4 to 9. He answers with, with real incredible wisdom. And you can see my outline. I want you to uh, notice three things about Jesus' answer. Uh, the first in verses 4 to 6 uh, is that I want you to notice that while the Pharisees are focused on divorce, either what are the grounds for divorce, uh, Jesus is focused on marriage. Has this mic dropped out? Sorry, I can't hear it anymore. Anyway, uh, Jesus is focused on marriage. Pharisees focused on divorce, Jesus on marriage. Verse 4, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with a question. And notice where his question directs the Pharisees to. He doesn't buy into their, uh, their current debates. He doesn't buy into their, uh, their kind of traditions. Uh, his question directs them back to the Bible. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Right? Yeah, it's a quote from Genesis 1, verse 20, uh, 27. Rather. Right? The, the creation of men and women. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, For this reason a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Uh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? That's the creation of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And so you see, Jesus, he doesn't want to argue with the Pharisees. He doesn't buy into the conversation about uh, the acceptable grounds for divorce. Uh, he'd much rather teach them, remind them, uh, about God's good intention for marriage. That's where he wants the focus to be. And as he teaches them, uh, he lays down at least five key principles uh, about marriage. Let me go through them. You can write them, you can write them down if you like. Uh, but the first one, uh, Jesus says, and this is a bit controversial in our day and age, uh, but Jesus says that uh, marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. Right? He quotes Genesis 1, verse 27. He says, at the beginning, uh, the Creator made them male and female. Like God's intention is that marriage would be a relationship between a man and a woman. I think that's even clearer in verse 5, isn't it? When, when Jesus says that, that marriage happens when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. So, so as far as God's concerned, like society may, can go whatever course it wants, right? But as far as I can tell, as far as God's concerned, marriage uh, always has been and always will be a, a relationship between a man and a woman. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that marriage is a relationship between equals. And so in Jewish society, I've already said, women uh, really were considered to be second-class citizens, right? only, only connected to the world through their, their male relationships. Uh, but Jesus reminds the Pharisees that in the beginning, God created men and women, husbands and wives, equally in his image. Equally, kind of image bearers over creation. Uh, so by extension, when it comes to, to thinking about marriage and divorce, uh, we should ensure that men and women are treated with the same dignity and respect. Right? Marriage is a relationship between equals. 
Uh, Third, uh, Jesus uh, says that marriage should be honoured and preserved uh, because amongst human relationships, uh, it's the ultimate relationship. Right again, in verse 7, look there, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 2, verse 24. Uh, For this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, right? The old translation would say cleave, right? Leave and cleave uh, and be united uh, to his wife. So there's a shift that happens here, right? When uh, a man and woman get married, uh, their obligation to each other, to their new family, that obligation far surpasses any obligation that they have to their biological family. By this, there's no obligation there, but there's a new priority in place. They've left two families and they've become a new family and that is the priority. They cleave to one another. So marriage should be honoured and preserved because even uh, it, it, it's the ultimate human relationship. Right? Even more important, more prioritised than biological family. Uh, fourth, uh, marriage should be honoured and preserved uh, because the union between husband and wife is both deep and comprehensive. Uh, I sometimes watch uh, House of Cards. I don't know if anyone else has, has seen that show. I don't watch it at the moment because we're waiting for the new season. Uh, but uh, in that, you know, there's a power couple, right? Like the, the, the main couple, uh, they're not married because of love. They're married because their partnership is politically expedient. Their partnership helps them to achieve their individual goals. That, that's how some people think about marriage. It's just a, a mutually beneficial partnership for their careers, uh, other people think that, that marriage is, is nothing more than uh, something that completes them, that fulfills them, that, that brings them happiness or pleasure. Uh, but in verse 6, Jesus says marriage is much more than that. But in marriage, uh, two separate family, people from two separate families uh, literally become one new family. Two separate people, Jesus says, become one new person, at least in some sense, right? They're one flesh. And so it follows that we should seek to preserve marriages because the physical and emotional and, and spiritual union between husband and wife is deep and comprehensive. And so the fifth follows from all the, the, the previous four points. At the end of verse 6, Jesus probably states that the only logical conclusion. Therefore, here's the, here's the application. What God has joined together, let no one separate. This is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question. He denies their, their liberal position that divorce can happen whenever we please, for any and every reason. Uh, Jesus says that it's not husbands or wives who rule over marriage, but God who rules over marriage. But in marriage, it's God who who brings two people together uh, as one flesh. So no human really has the right to separate the union that God has made. So in verses 4 to 6, Jesus says that it's God's good intention uh, that every marriage would be lifelong. In that sense, God never wants divorce to happen. In fact, Malachi 2 verse 16 says, God hates divorce. 
And not because he hates people who are in unhappy marriages or who feel that separation or divorce are their only option. No, he hates it because when two people get married, uh, they become one flesh. Or I've just heard that. They're united in every way. And so the only way to, to separate those people uh, is through a, a painful and risky and radical operation. But let's not kid ourselves. Like it's something like trying to separate Siamese twins who've been meshed together for years. Like that, that, kind of, that kind of operation is, is risky. It's tough. And if you've seen someone go through separation or divorce, you know that. So wherever possible, Jesus says, look, that, that kind of thing should be avoided at all costs. So in verses 4 to 6, uh, we see, you get the vibe. The Pharisees are, are focused on divorce, uh, but Jesus is focused on marriage. Uh, verses 7 and 8. Uh, the Pharisees call divorce a command, uh, but Jesus calls it a concession. Have a look in verse 7. Uh, the Pharisees say, Well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? I remember that that's Deuteronomy 24. And in verse 8, Jesus kind of concedes, implicitly at least, that, that God's law did permit divorce. But it's not like that's the ideal, Jesus says. Like it wasn't that way from the beginning. In fact, God only permitted it because Israel's hearts were hard. Right, so you see what Jesus is saying here. So even though God's intention is that every marriage would be lifelong, uh, he, he concedes that sometimes divorce is permissible. Right, it's permissible uh, because our hearts are hardened by sin. And there's at least two implications of that. Right? The first is uh, that divorce is always uh, the tragic result of someone's sin. Even if one party is almost exclusively the victim, right? there's always sin involved. And that's important, perhaps, because uh, since the mid-1970s uh, in Australia, we've had uh, the, uh, the Family Law Act, uh, which enshrined uh, what's called no-fault divorce. You've heard that term before? So in Australia now, uh, if a couple wants to separate or divorce, you don't have to uh, ascribe fault, or uh, you just have to show uh, that you've been separated uh, for 12 months. I mean, in verse 8, Jesus says that there's really no such thing as no-fault divorce. Right? Every divorce is the tragic result of sin. Someone's sin. Now, that's the first implication. Now, the second implication is that God is incredibly merciful. Incredibly merciful. Uh, God knows that, that sometimes uh, in, our hard, in our hardness of heart, in, in, our, in our sinfulness, uh, that we can pervert and distort marriage so much that to continue in a particular marriage would perhaps be even a greater evil than divorce. Like he doesn't like divorce, but sometimes marriage can be just so messed up. So God mercifully concedes, right? He, he doesn't command, like that's the Pharisee's word, but he, he concedes and then in the brokenness of this world, sometimes divorce is permissible. Uh, finally, verse 9. Uh, you can probably guess like from the trajectory of where the Pharisees and Jesus are coming from. Uh, the Pharisees are, are casual about divorce. They're, they're sort of flippant about it. Uh, Jesus is very serious about divorce. 
verse 9, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Pretty much the same thing in Matthew 5. I tell you, Jesus says, that, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, maybe this seems a bit jarring in the sense that Jesus has just affirmed Moses' concession that at least in some circumstances, divorce is permissible. Right? So presumably, uh, Jesus would also say that it's okay in those circumstances for someone to get married again. So why is he here seeming to be saying that anyone who gets divorced then remarries is committing adultery? Like, like, which is it? Is Jesus kind of affirming what Moses taught or is he overturning it? So let me give you uh, three reasons why I think it's unlikely that Jesus is overturning what Moses taught. Just real brief. Uh, first, uh, he's just finished saying that Moses, uh, Moses rightly permitted divorce because of how hard and sinful our hearts are. And so on one level, the question is, uh, do you think that our hearts are any less hard or less sinful today than they were in Moses' day? I don't think so. But I think that the reason for God's concession in Moses' day uh, still stands today. Uh, Second, uh, back in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it. So it would be unusual, right? not impossible, but unusual if Jesus was giving, a, uh, giving an example here uh, where he was deliberately overturning something that, that Moses said. And third, from verse 9 in and of itself, I think it's clear uh, that Jesus permits divorce and remarriage, at least in some circumstances. Because there's that ex- exception clause, isn't there? Except for sexual immorality. That includes adultery, but it's not limited to adultery. Like it's basically any, it's kind of the, the, the junk drawer term to refer to any sexual immorality, anything that goes outside God's uh, design for sex that we talked a bit about last week. And so, so it doesn't seem like Jesus is kind of overturning what Moses taught. He's saying there are circumstances where divorce is permissible, and in those circumstances, uh, remarriage is permissible. Also, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says uh, that if a non-Christian husband or wife uh, deserts, that's not desert as in the sweet thing you have after dinner, but deserts as in goes away, right? Deserts uh, their Christian husband or wife. There's some debate about what desertion means there. Like, I think it, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be sexual. Different kinds of desertion, right? But if that desertion happens... Uh, then the Christian is not bound to stay in that marriage, Paul says. And they're free to remarry. Maybe this is a bit heavy, but I think this is important, right? So so it's clear uh, that Jesus and the early church uh, aren't saying that divorce and remarriage is always wrong in every circumstance, that it is always uh, adultery to get remarried. I don't think that's what the, the Bible teaches. So, so how do we read Jesus' words? Well, well two things. Uh, first, uh, we have to remember that he's addressing that Jewish controversy. Right? And it's clear that he's completely rejecting where the Pharisees are coming from. He, he thinks it's inappropriate. The, the whole idea that a husband could divorce his wife for any and his, every reason is completely unbiblical. 
In fact, Jesus is warning the Pharisees that if they take that approach themselves, if they teach their disciples that approach, uh, they're encouraging, uh, they're practicing adultery. They're not righteous. But second, in light of these passages from Matthew and, and the rest of the New Testament, I think we can conclude that if someone divorces their husband or wife for unbiblical reasons and then they remarry, uh, that Jesus is saying that they're committing adultery. Why is that? Well, because in God's eyes, their their first marriage was never really separated. They're still in that one flesh union with them. So how can you be in one flesh union with that person and have the same thing with someone else, right? On the other hand, if someone divorces their husband or wife for for biblical grounds, for sexual immorality, for for willful desertion, uh, in God's eyes, that marriage is separated, uh, so the person is free uh, to remarry. I guess the point is that it's complicated. Uh, You can't, we can't take a one-size-fits-all approach, I don't think. Uh, We've got to hear Jesus' warning. Uh, We've got to hear his mercy, his merciful concession. And we've got to carefully think through each individual situation as it comes along. So as we finish, I do just want to apply to a few specific situations. Uh, The first is that there there may be someone here uh, uh, who's married to someone who has been sexually unfaithful. I don't know. There could be. Uh, You're married to someone who's uh, committed adultery, perhaps, or some other form of sexual immorality, as Jesus describes here. And and in that case, uh, there are biblical grounds for divorce. That seems clear. I guess I just wanted to say that just because there are biblical grounds for divorce, that doesn't mean automatically that God wants you to divorce. God's preference is always, wherever possible, uh, that unhappy and broken and, 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 and messed up marriages are healed and restored and reconciled. That, that's always God's preference. So if you're here today and you're considering separation, you're considering divorce, I guess my encouragement is to, to come and speak to me about it, speak to a trusted friend about it. I, I don't even pretend to understand all the complexity of it. But we'd like to be with you and to help you out in the midst of everything you're going through. I just want to communicate that. We're happy to talk. Uh, the second thing is, uh, the second kind of group of people here might be people who are, who are feeling that you've already sinned by wrongfully getting a divorce. And you might even think, will God forgive me for that? You're kind of burning. Is this the unforgivable sin? So I just wanted to assure you that uh, that Jesus died on the cross for all your sin. Like, I don't know if you've sought a divorce wrongly or not. But if you are convinced you have, Jesus died for that sin too. It's not beyond the, the, the realms of God's grace and mercy. And so if you feel convicted about that, then you confess it to God. Uh, you tell someone else about it if you want to. Embrace God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Having said that, if that's you and, and you haven't remarried yet, 
I do want you to grapple with what Jesus has to say in verse 32. Because I think he's saying that if you have separated or divorced for for unbiblical reasons, then you, you should really stay single. Right? Because your first marriage isn't technically over. Once again, I recognize that, that that's incredibly hard to hear. So I'm happy to talk about it. There's other people here who are happy to talk about it. Of course, if you've divorced, I mean, this gets complicated, right? If you've divorced and remarried and you think, oh, gee, I've made a mistake. Jesus says I'm committing adultery. What should I do? Maybe I'll leave this marriage. No, 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 no. Right? You, you say to God, I'm sorry. You embrace his forgiveness and you do whatever you can to make this marriage work. Uh, finally, some of you here are married, uh, but as you sit here today, you just kind of feel like you've fallen out of love with your husband or wife. Maybe you've even thought about, uh, should we separate? Should, should we divorce? Well, I guess on one level, this passage makes it clear that, that falling out of love is not biblical grounds for divorce. So if this is you, yeah, like I want you to uh, hear these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, writer. Uh, this is what he said. He said this once to a couple that he was marrying. Uh, he said he was officiating at their wedding. Uh, he said, remember this, uh, that from this day forward, uh, it is not your love that sustains your marriage, but your marriage that sustains your love. Put differently, maybe different words. Uh, it's not your feelings of love that sustain your marriage covenant, but your marriage covenant that sustains your feelings of love. So we live in a culture that, I um, mean, Frozen's an example, can reference that. Right? Our culture is quite obsessed with the whole experience of falling in love. And I'm not anti that. Like, I loved falling in love with Gabby. Wonderful time. Brilliant experience. I love falling in love with her over and over again. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, but feelings of falling in love are not enough to sustain a lifelong marriage. They're just not enough. But your marriage will be sustained if you and your husband or wife are deeply convinced uh, that you, when you got married, you made a, a covenant before God. You made promises before God. You made a, a vow before God. And in that moment, God himself brought you into a one flesh union that actually exists. And not, not just on a piece of paper, but you guys are bound together physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That, that union exists. And no matter how you feel, you see, you're bound together, uh, not by how you feel, but by your promises to one another, by your covenant with one another. So G.K. Chesterton said that the person who makes a, a, a vow to someone else uh, makes an appointment with themselves at some distant time or place. What does that mean? It means if I'm married to Gabby, which I am, I have an appointment with her to be her husband. Next week, next month, next year. Could put in the diary, as long as we both shall live. There's an appointment in the diary to be her husband. Right? You see, it's our, it's our promises, our, our marriage, our, our covenant that sustains and enlivens feelings. Not the other way around. 
And that's also true of our relationship with Christ, isn't it? Our feelings come and go, your feelings come and go, uh, because our hearts are hard and sinful. So isn't it good news? It's good news that, that what sustains your relationship with Christ is not how you feel, but the fact that Christ has made a covenant with you. Christ has made a vow to you. He, he's got an appointment with you to be your saviour, to be your Lord, to be your king, your lover, your friend forever. He's made, he's, got that, a he's made that commitment to you and you know that he will keep that commitment, that covenant, unconditionally. Because he's already paid the price for every time you break it. And I think it's the more you understand that, Christ's unconditional commitment to you, uh, the more you understand that, the more you'll be moved, uh, no matter how you feel, to make unconditional commitments to others, to your husband or wife. And now I know for some of you here, that, that, that seems like really unromantic. Like that didn't happen in any of the romantic comedies I've ever seen. Uh, you know, like it's, it's so much duty and no delight. Like, yeah. And if that's how you feel, uh, let me just say that I think that it's actually in, uh, in the foundation, in, in the soil of that kind of deep commitment that feelings continue to grow. If you pursue feelings with that, that then the marriage falls apart. It's in the soil of deep covenant commitment that feelings of love and intimacy continue to grow and develop over time. So yes, like feelings, don't hear, don't hear me saying that feelings are wrong. They're great, just not enough. Bound together, and we're bound to Christ by his commitment to us. Husband and wife are bound together by their promises, their covenant with one another. Let me, let me pray. Gracious Father, uh, you know these uh, teachings are, are hard uh, for many of us to hear. Uh, we thank you that the cross tells us uh, that you are good and wise and loving. And that even if we can't, just as we couldn't understand why your son would need to die on the cross, it seemed foolish and ridiculous. Uh, sometimes we can't understand your teaching on other things. But we thank you that the cross assures us that, that we can trust, even if we don't understand everything, that you have good and, li uh, and wise and loving reasons for, for putting boundaries in place where you do for our good, for our protection. Oh, we pray, Lord uh, God, that you would increasingly grip our hearts with your incredible, uh, unconditional commitment to us, that you have covenanted uh, to be our Lord and Saviour and King uh, forever, that nothing can separate us from your love. And we pray that we'd be moved by that uh, to make these unconditional commitments to each other, particularly for those here who are married. I pray that they'd be moved to, to give themselves to one another uh, from this day forward, as long as they both shall live, uh, no matter how they feel. And we pray that in the soil of that, those kind of deep commitments, that, that feelings of love and intimacy uh, would continue to, to grow and to blossom. Uh, for your glory, we pray. Amen.